Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. And today we're going to go out west to Washington. But before we do, I think we wanted to thank some listeners in Virginia. Yes, we have listeners in Norfolk, Lorton, Alexandria, Fredericksburg, Manassas, Virginia Beach, Roanoke, Springfield, Tuckahoe, Herden, Ashburn, Lake Ridge, Culpeper, Winchester, Franconia, Meadowbrook, Luray, Ashburn, Woodbridge, and Falls Church. So thank you very much to our Virginia listeners. We appreciate it. For those in Alexandria, I love your city. I'm there often. It is nice. It's one of the most pet-friendly cities in America, I think. That's why we went there to start with. We took our French Bulldog pretty much everywhere with us. So we found a place because we were visiting D.C. and it's right across the way and we could have him and he was happy in all the hotels. We spent like three hours in the lobby drinking with other people with dogs. It was awesome. It's a good time. Couldn't bring mine. (laughs) Just bring the muggles. (laughs) Unfortunately, due to their anxiety. Yes, poor babies. So this is our first time in Washington State, right? I don't think we've been out there before. I don't believe so. We'll look at the board. You're at our uh, central station. Which would be my spare bedroom. But yeah, (laughs) it looks like this is our first case in Washington. So we're going to go back to 1986, March 20th. 26th to be exact. And we're in Tacoma, Washington, which is pretty far north and not too far from the Canadian border. Barbara Leonard had just purchased a home for her and her three daughters, Nicole, Angela, and Michelle. The three girls were taking piano lessons in the area. And that day, their mother had said that they could leave around a half hour early so that they could play at Pugent Park, which is a couple miles from their house and across the street from their lessons. So their plan was to take their bikes, go a little bit early, have some time at the park, and then for all three girls to go to their piano lesson. It was spring break and their mom was at work, so they left a few hours early, which is not what they were allowed to do, around 10 a.m. so that they could have more time to play at the park. And let's keep in mind, this is 1986, so the free-range kid was completely normal. This was not out of the ordinary at all for kids to be able to to go and roam free. I remember that time well. (laughs) Not like now. Not like now. No, it's... And I think even when I was little, it was sort of in that transition phase where people started to really get scared of things more so like with their kids sort of being out and about and I remember having like harnesses (laughs) with like the harness leash combo when we were little. I didn't have that. Now, granted, we did have, my mom had three kids under three, so. That's true. She needed to corral you all. Yeah. No, I was of the era when I was a youngin. There weren't even car seats. Like you sat on your mom's lap in the front. <laughs> it's a wonder I made it. <laughs> I'm like, and, you're, and you're still here. So while they were at the park, they realized that they hadn't brought lunches. So Michelle offered to go back and make lunches while her sister stayed at the park. And from all accounts, Michelle was a very independent child and liked being the big sister that could help out and really be more independent. She was getting to that age. She was 12 going on 13 where she really wanted that independence. How old were her other sisters, Nicole and Angela? I believe they were in like the 8 to 10 range. Okay. Like an 8, a 10, and then she was 12 going on 13. I I believe from memory of watching. There was a dateline done on this called Evil is Watching. I'm not sure what season and episode it was, but that's where I got a lot of the information here. While she was out getting the lunches, going back to the house, the sisters had to use the restroom, but there wasn't one at the park. So they had to go down the street to a local business. When they got back to the park around 1.15, they saw Michelle's bike was locked up and the lunches were on the table, but there was no sign of Michelle. They started to call out for her using her name, but also they had a sort of family call call that was sort of like if you hear people doing owl calls or bird calls so that they know who is calling them. Can you do it? Ooh, ooh. 
something to that effect. They had a family call that they had used. So they started to do that as well throughout the park, but they couldn't find her anywhere. Her sisters contacted police, which I would imagine that they went to a local house to do that. And their mother was notified as well. And police began to search the park around 3.10 in the afternoon, but they couldn't find any trace of Michelle either besides her bike and the lunches that were left. As the police were investigating and questioning people, a 13-year-old classmate told detectives that he saw a man in the park that day under Proctor Bridge, which was very close to the park, who kept looking at the girls. He was described as a white 24 to 26-year-old, around 5'9 and very skinny. He was wearing a blue jean jacket with holes in it, blue jeans which were dirty, and ripped white tennis shoes. A sketch was drawn and distributed, but the man was never found. A man who worked at Michelle's school was driving by the park around 1.30 and said that he saw Michelle at the park speaking with a man that he didn't know or recognize. The unidentified man was last seen with Michelle and described as possibly Hispanic, 25 to 35, 5'8", with black hair and a possible mustache and light-colored clothing. Nightfall came and they deployed a search and rescue team using dogs to, to search to try to find Michelle. Around 11.30 p.m., they were in an overgrown gulch when they found Michelle's body. She was left beside a makeshift fire pit, but she hadn't been burnt. She had been sexually assaulted and had an injury to her neck that had been her cause of death. When you say injury to her neck, was that strangulation or was that her neck being broken? It was a stab wound to her neck, so it wasn't strangulation. It wasn't something where she could have fallen and broken her neck. It was truly a a wound to her neck. Okay. For months, they followed tips and they looked into the, the two witnesses, the descriptions that they had given, and they had distributed the sketch, but they couldn't find anything. A few months later, a man that was jogging reported seeing a man that resembled the sketch that had been produced based on the classmate's description of the man that was sitting under the bridge watching the girls. The man he saw was in Point Defiance Park, which is a few miles from Pugent Park. This made police worry that the same predator was out searching for his next victim. Five months later, in August of 1986, Patty and Jenny Bastian had slept in and they had moved once they were out of bed to lay out in the dining room and bask in the sun that was coming through the windows and just have really good mother-daughter snuggle time. Jenny was 13 and she was described as a bit rough and tumble, always playing sports and kicking a ball. She had just gotten a new bicycle that she wanted to master. She had been practicing riding the bike so that she could ride in the YMCA tour of Lopez Island, which is north of Tacoma. She called her father to ask if she was allowed to ride her bike around a five-mile trail that goes around Point Defiance Park, and he agreed but told her to be back by 6.30, which hats off to her for five miles on a bike because I go around the block on a bike and I can't do anymore but that's just me. Well, she's also young, yes. younger than you. <laughs> but that's five miles. Isn't that a far away for a kid on a bike? No, a five really. mile not trail. a bicycle. No, I don't think so. Not being that young. I remember when I was young, I rode everywhere on my bike. Yeah. Just to go from where I lived up to the community pool was seven miles, like up the mountain, wow. both ways. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, okay. She had left a note for her mom who had gone to work for her evening shift about 40 minutes away and she took her bike out around 2.30 in the afternoon. Around 8.30 at night, Patty, her mom, had gotten a call at work from her husband telling her that she needed to come home because Jenny had been due back hours before and she still wasn't there. They had called the police as well and the police were looking in the park and they told her parents to stay home and wait. And keep in mind, the five miles around the park is around the park. So the park is much larger than that. It's a huge area to 
cover. And because she was doing the entire trail, they had to search the entire park. It wasn't just a small playground area. Three boys who went to school with Jenny saw her around 4.10 p.m. riding her bicycle in the opposite direction of them on the five-mile drive. They had recalled seeing a man riding near her, but said that she didn't seem concerned or in danger. Two people had spoken with a girl fitting Jenny's description between three and five, but they didn't know the exact time, at the Dalco Passage viewpoint. The girl dropped her helmet on the ground, drank from a water bottle, and talked to them about training for an upcoming ride. Around 11 o'clock, the police came to the door with bloodhounds, asking for a piece of Jenny's clothing so that they could get the search dogs out to continue looking for her. Point Defiance Park was closed for three days with hundreds of people helping with the search, but they could not find Jenny. And keeping in mind, this is five months after Michelle was found. So for the city of Tacoma, there was almost a feeling of this is the same thing. We have to find this girl that she could be in really grave danger. It wasn't just, you know, she could she could be lost in the woods or something. They really feared for her. Jenny's sister, Teresa, was 15 at the time, and she appeared in the media pleading for help from people to just find her sister. Patty then got a visit from Barbara, who is Michelle's mom, and she was just trying to offer support. And Patty, when she remembers, she says that Barbara was very sweet. But when she left, Patty said to a friend, I don't know why she came here. Jenny's not dead. And she just couldn't accept the fact that something could have happened to her daughter. Was she still going on the assumption that she was just lost? Like she's out in this big park. She lost her way. Maybe she got injured and her bike got damaged and she just was waiting for people to find her. I don't think it was assumption. I think it was more hope at this point because when Barbara came to see her, this was a few days later. So it wasn't immediately after where she could have just, you know, been somewhere and they they hadn't found her and she was lost. It was really, this has been days that this girl has been missing and she knew the park well. If it were something where she had just lost her way or her bike had been damaged, I think she would have been found by then. I think her mom was really just holding on to this this hope that she was still okay. Because mm-hmm. this was a paved trail she was riding. For at least part of it. I'm not sure the entire trail was paved, but for at least part of it. And it was a well-known trail. It wasn't something where it was hidden or it went you know deep into the woods. It was used by everybody. Like the boys that had crossed her path, they all went to the same school. There were joggers, bikers. The path was very well-tread and people were on it all the time. On day 28 of Jenny's disappearance, Patty needed to take her mind off of everything that was going on. She decided to paint the dining room to keep herself busy. It was then that the detective arrived. He took the paint roller from her hand and had her sit down when he told her that they had found Jenny. She was found in an overgrown area near a footpath by a group of joggers. Her bike had been hidden with fern leaves and her body had been further down in what was described as an igloo of sticks and leaves. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. Both victims were similar ages, 12 and 13. They were both blonde with blue eyes, riding bikes in city parks. Fear washed over Tacoma and children who at that point had free roam and were free range kids were no longer allowed to go out alone. Police had one suspect, David Fisher. Fisher didn't really fit the descriptions that had been given of anybody that had been seen with Michelle, but he had pleaded guilty to second-degree manslaughter after sexually assaulting and killing Laura Burbank. She was a 13-year-old girl in Tacoma, and this happened in June of 1970, so this was 16 years prior. He was 29 at the time of this murder, and he had been a model prisoner, but by 1974, he was on a sort of prison farm, so there were no walls and there was very little security, and he walked off campus mid-afternoon, and it wasn't discovered that he was missing until the evening prisoner count hours later. He had been missing ever since, but the only 
connection to the case was the victim's ages. They didn't have anything to connect him to it. It was just that he was the only person in that area that had ever committed a crime that was anywhere similar to this. So in 1970, he's sent to prison. 74, he's transferred to this prison farm. 74, he walks away from the prison farm. Was he still out there in 1986, never being detained, never being found out that he's an escaped prisoner and he didn't finish his sentence? They just let him go? They just couldn't find him. He was missing. They couldn't find him at all. He wasn't found until the mid-90s in Canada. And he had started a new family and a new job and had been apparently a model citizen in Canada. But they found him, brought him back, and he's now in prison. So I'm just fascinated by the guy that walked away from the prison farm. Yeah, he just walked away. David Fisher, did he use his same name up in Canada? No, he changed his name. And did his wife know that he had walked away from a prison farm because he was there for basically sexually molesting and killing a young girl? She did not. She did not know. And when he had killed Laura Burbank, at the time, he was 29 and he was married to a 16-year-old who was pregnant. And she's the one that came to the police and said he came home with really dirty jeans one night and that's not like him. And then she found Laura's underwear in their home that he had kept as a trophy. So she's the one that turned him in. 16? Yeah, 16. And how old was he? 29. Yeah. Ew. (laughs) Apparently Washington in the 70s was, you know, something. So again, there was nothing really connecting David to these two victims. The MO was different as well. David had actually known Laura. So he worked at a pet store and she had come in a couple times and then he struck up sort of a friendship with her. And then he told her to meet him somewhere and she did. And then that's when he had attacked and and killed her. And she was killed with a blow to the head, not any neck injury. So really when you look at just the MO of the the killings themselves, it didn't match up either. The police were flooded with tips from everything to seeing someone suspicious to my neighbors acting strange, but they couldn't really get anywhere and both cases went cold. In 2011, Detective Gene Miller started a cold case unit in Tacoma. He noticed that Lindsay Wade was making her way through the ranks. She made detective in 2013 and joined his unit. They had created a list of 2,300 names of possible suspects based on interviews at the time, people that had been convicted of similar, you know, sexually related crimes that lived in the area, just anybody that could have something to do with these murders. The theory was that this person had to have been previously convicted, that it wasn't just somebody that had no criminal record that went and attacked these two girls, and they were also convinced that this was the same person that they were looking for. Semen had been found on Michelle's body, but when technology had finally caught up, it was tested but matched nothing in the FBI database. No DNA had been found on Jenny, but they still had the swimsuit that she had been wearing that day, so they sent that for testing. Semen was found on the swimsuit that could be tested for a DNA profile. When they tested the DNA from Michelle to what was found on Jenny's swimsuit, it wasn't a match. So now they have two killers that they're looking for. They tested what was found on Jenny's swimsuit against criminal databases as well, but there were no matches. So they have two killers who have never been in the system. Do they feel that these two were working together or were these two just separate incidences? They were just separate incidences. They couldn't find any connection besides the age of the victims and the type of crime that would tie the two together. And because it wasn't as if they had suspects that they were looking 
lean into where they were trying to find somebody that was connected to another person that could have done it. I believe that they were treating them at this point as two separate cases. In 2015, Jean Miller retired and now it was all up to Lindsay Wade and she felt very connected to this case because when the girls had been murdered, she was around 11 and she lived in Tacoma her entire life. So she remembered when this happened and feeling that fear and wanted really to to solve these cases. It was her main focus. She contacted Colleen Fitzpatrick, an expert in forensic genealogy. Colleen focuses on using DNA profiles submitted through genealogy websites to find possible relatives based on common markers. Detective Wade Lindsay sent the samples and Colleen tested against her existing database. So she had been pulling from, I guess, public databases where once you have your DNA tested, you can also allow those results to be viewed by law enforcement. They didn't find an exact match, but she did find possible family names that could be connected to the sample found in Jenny's case. So just to explain a little bit further, what she was really looking for was last names that could be in common with the killer based on information available on these ancestry genealogy websites. So she was really looking for names that she could flag that then they could compare to their suspect list to try to narrow things down. They began to investigate the names that were found, but nothing really raised any red flags. They did see the name Washburn, but he hadn't been a suspect. He had been a witness. He was actually the jogger that had first tipped police that he had seen someone in Point Defiance Park that resembled the sketch from Michelle's murder. At this point, it was just a similar last name. Detective Wade also went to Parabond, and they are the company that takes DNA profiles and they turn them into sketches of what suspects could look like. So chances are, if you've watched Dateline in the last four years, three years, a year, you've probably seen versions of these sketches where they just take your DNA markers and they try based on your race and some other pieces in there to create a sketch of what you could possibly look like. Sometimes they're pretty accurate, sometimes they're way off. In 2016, the sketches were released and it was announced to the public at that point that they were looking for two killers. They opened a tip line and got tons of tips based on the sketches, but nothing really held water. Detective Wade then took her list of 2,300 names and tried to prioritize based on who had been convicted or had a written record. She began collecting DNA of those priority suspects and the one name that had come up in the genealogy search, Washburn. They collected 160 samples in relation to both cases, so Michelle and Jenny, and began testing, but this takes months to process and they do it small batch by small batch. It took a year and no matches came through within that year. In 2018, Detective Wade retired from the force after years of working these two cases. Before she left, she submitted the last batch of DNA samples, and there were 18 left to be tested. And the samples that they collected, by the way, was just going door to door and asking these men for DNA samples. It wasn't things where they already had them on file. They were actually going out and requesting that these men give samples to clear their names in relation to this case. Isn't this so interesting? I'm excited about it. It is a very interesting case. So, Question. When the name Washburn keeps coming up and he's the witness, they got his DNA sample too, right? They asked him? Yes, they asked him and he willingly provided a DNA sample and was part of the 160 that were being tested. Was he in the last batch to be submitted? 
excited he was. Dun, dun, dun. 25 days after retiring, she got a call from the detective that had replaced her and they had gotten a match on the DNA found in Jenny's case. That match was to 60-year-old Robert Washburn. Oh, so excited. So this was the DNA that was found on Jenny's swimsuit. Correct. But it was semen. I'm just making sure that it's not like he could have worked in a store that once touched the swimsuit and it wasn't washed before she put it on. Like, no, this was semen. Since the murder, he had been a model citizen. He had been married and divorced and was now living in an apartment in Eureka, Illinois with his daughter. She was 20 years old at this point and she had a disability. I couldn't see what exactly her disability was, but it was to the point where he was her full-time caregiver and he didn't work at all. That was his full-time job was taking care of her. He was arrested in his home and his neighbors were shocked. Nobody could believe that this man had anything to do with this crime. Who took care of his daughter then? She may have gone with her mother. I'm not sure. I didn't see anything about his daughter at that point, but his mother was the woman that he had divorced. So I don't know if she then went to live with her. I'm not really sure. When he was questioned, he was described as scared and nervous. He asked if this was about the swab that he had given more than a year ago. And then he said, I didn't kill that little girl, which if you're a detective and the first thing that comes out of your suspect's mouth is I didn't kill that little girl, chances are that he killed that little girl. In January 2019, he pled guilty to first-degree murder and was sentenced to 27 years in prison. So he did kill that little girl. He did, and he pled guilty to it. In a statement read by the judge, he said that he grabbed Jenny by the arm, dragged her into the woods and strangled her. Did he leave the part out that he sexually assaulted her? He did. He did not include that in his statement, but it was part of his plea deal that he had to give a a statement on what had happened. They found the semen on her swimsuit, was there, and she was sexually assaulted, but he didn't leave any semen inside her. No. I'm just wondering, like, sometimes you hear about killers that, like BTK, like I think in his first killing where he killed the little girl, he ejaculated and left semen on the floor, but he didn't leave any on the victim. Well, and it may Maybe too that in the late 80s, so at this time, maybe he was trying to not leave DNA because it was to the point, I believe at that time, they could at least tell like blood types and secretions and they were starting to get into being able to identify people based on body fluid. So maybe it was purposeful that he was trying to not leave DNA. And if he willingly gave a sample of his DNA, he had to have thought that he didn't leave any on the scene. That's true. But they couldn't either when he gave his statement, figure out why he called the police to give the tip in the first place that a jogger had been seen that resembled the sketch. But in my mind, it seemed more like it's he was setting this up this seemed like something premeditated to me because the call that came in was months before jenny was killed which means he would have called in the fake tip and then months later been sitting in wait in the park looking for a victim which just makes it even more heinous yeah because that's right he called in the tip a michelle is killer right saying i saw this guy in point defiance park and then months later he snatches a little girl in point defiance park Mm, you're right and he only got 27 years which granted At this point, he's 60 years old, so he'll be in his 90s by the time he's actually eligible to get out. But 27 years just seemed like a very light sentence to me, even for a plea deal. Were they able to connect him to any other sexual molestations or sexual assaults or murders? I know it was premeditated, but like a one and done and he never did anything ever again? It seemed odd to me, too. I could not see where there had been any he was tied to anything at this point. Now, granted, he was sent he was convicted 
convicted a year ago, well, pled guilty a year ago now. So, and when you think too of all the backlog that's going on, when you think of these all these DNA samples, there hasn't been anything that I could see where there's been hits on things that have been tested, but it may also be a thing where if there were other victims, that DNA hasn't been tested yet, so they haven't found the hit. It, it did seem very odd to me too. This is such a violent crime that to have just one victim seems extremely odd to me. Yeah, well, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I have a Google alert for his name on my phone. So if anything comes through, I'll be sure to let you know. <laughs> okay. Now, once Robert Washburn was found, they still had to find Michelle's killer. Back in 2018, Parabon, who had originally created the sketches that they used for with the DNA profile, used new forensic genealogy techniques to look for a familial match. 40 days after Washburn's arrest and 32 years after Michelle's murder, Barbara, her mother, got a call from the chief of police telling her that they'd apprehended the man they felt was responsible. Through the familial DNA search, they had come up with two brothers as possible suspects. On June 4, 2018, Tacoma detectives began monitoring one of those brothers, Gary Hartman. On June 5th, Hartman went into his job at Western State Hospital and then to a nearby restaurant for breakfast with a co-worker. He used a napkin to wipe his mouth a few times, and the detectives were able to collect it and obtain a DNA match to 66-year-old Gary Hartman. Gary was a nurse in a psychiatric hospital with no record, nothing indicating the monster that he was. He was arrested and bail was set at $5 million. He is still awaiting trial. Does his sketch that Parabon put out match what he looked like back at the time of Michelle's murder? I really tried to find a picture of what he looked like in 1986 and I could not find one. I did find Robert Washburn's and his is pretty close, but Gary, all you can tell is the sketch that was done based on his age in 1986 and what he looks like now. And it's not too far off, but the thing you run into with those sketches is that they're so general that it could be anybody. It's not something where it's very specific to traits. It's just a guess based on DNA markers. So it just looked like a white guy. Like it, it didn't look like anything very specific. It wasn't like he had this huge protruding nose and the sketch salt captured that as well. There wasn't anything that was so remarkable that you could tell for sure this was the same person. So they have two killers who apparently this is a one and done five months apart in the same area. Yes. Oh, that's terrifying. It is. And it makes it so much more terrifying when you think, because when I started to think about the fact that this does seem so one and done, and even based on the way that they did their investigation, which I'm in no way putting that in question because they did it the way that you should, you look at people that have already committed this sort of crime or people that have been suspected of this sort of crime. But how many are out there that do this one time, they have an impulse, they go with it, and then they never hurt anybody again, and they don't raise any red flags that are just out there wandering the streets. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, I wanted to talk a little bit about Parabon Labs. So they're the ones that came through with the Gary Hartman DNA match, well, the familial match that led to finding Gary Hartman. They started snapshot genetic genealogy testing in 2018, and as of May of 2019, had solved 55 cases. And that number just continues to grow based on these familial DNA matches. They were also involved, right, with the Golden State Killer? Yes, they've been involved in a ton of really big cases. And so I thought that today, instead of doing a life tip, we could kind of have a call to action for listeners. Yes. So right now, when you get your DNA tested with Ancestry or 23andMe, those uh, bigger sites, law enforcement does not automatically have access 
to your DNA profile. However, if you add your DNA profile to GEDmatch, that's G-E-D-M-A-T-C-H.com, you also have to check a box stating that you allow law enforcement to access your DNA profile, you can help real time solve these cases. So I've not had my DNA tested yet, but my uh, 23andMe kit is ordered and on its way because this just encouraged me to do it. And I've been listening to, I listened to Murder Squad as well, and they've talked about it since their show started back, I think in August, about how important it is to get your DNA if you have had it tested, get it uploaded to this website. If you haven't, get it tested, get it uploaded because for all of us true crime fans that really want to see these cases solved and for peace to be brought to these families, we can really assist because even if it's not somebody that's closely related to you, even if it's a third cousin that you don't even know exists, you can help solve these crimes. So I do have a 23andMe, so I'll have to go on GEDmatch and do that. Though mine's a little different. I'm a I have no idea who my biological family members are. So, well, and I think too, because they can, once they get some sort of match, they can start to link you to other people too. So it may be where Ooh, I might be able to find out my family members. Well, and so Cece Moore is one of the, the head people at Parabon Labs that helps with this. And she actually started out helping people find family members. So especially for people that were adopted to based on their DNA profiles that were uploaded, help them find their biological families. And then it went from that to solving these crimes. That's my call to action. Okay. Well, thank you everybody for listening. This has been a great episode. You did a great job, Maddie. Well, thank you. So thanks for taking the time to listen. If you could tell others about our podcast, that would be great. Word of mouth. And also if you get a chance, if you go on iTunes or wherever you listen to us, give us a review. We'd appreciate it. You can of course check out our Facebook page. It's Criminal Discourse Podcast or our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. We do have a contact page there where you can reach out to us and look at all of our show notes and information that we share. And you can also find us on Instagram. That is criminaldispod, D-I-S-P-O-D. So until next time, guys, as we always end the show, if you see something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle that could solve the case your DNA could possibly solve the case. And as always, be safe, but let's also be kind to one another. Until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.